As we carry on in the series of episodes on COVID-19, I'm glad to still be around for some more discussions and today's topic will be the uncertainties of the complexities. In simple terms, the complications of COVID-19. Yeah, so the COVID-19 pandemic has definitely reminded us on the crucial role of an effective host immune response and uh, the devastating effects of a dysregulated immune response. That's right. And on the same context of a dysregulated immune response, I would like to discuss one very important and feared complication of COVID-19, which is cytokine release syndrome, or also known as CRS in short. The term cytokine release syndrome was first coined to describe a syndrome similar to the uh, engraftment syndrome of cancer disease that we see. So what happened was following an um, allogenic blood stem cell transplant, this group of people were found to have a form of dysregulation in their bodily system. And in COVID-19, similarly, it was understood that there is dysregulation in the immune response to the SARS-CoV-2 infection instead. And this is characterized by the raised levels of circulating cytokines. Okay, so Lavanya, maybe you want to tell us briefly what are cytokines and why are they important in our immune system? Yeah, sure. So, okay, let me try to explain it in a simple way. The term cytokine comes from the combination of two Greek words, which are cyto, meaning the cell, and kainos, meaning movement. I hope I pronounced it right. So these are cells <laughs> that help signal and aid communication between other cells in an immune response. And cytokines, they help stimulate the movement of cells towards sites of inflammation, infection and trauma. And that's why in these situations, you would expect a surge in cytokine levels. Okay, I got you. So, who can actually develop CRS? Over the last year, we have uh, pretty much understood that those with uh, risk factors, uh, such as being obese and having comorbidities, uh, they are at a higher risk of developing CRS, which is one of the elements of severe disease. Right. So, you're saying here is, um, you know, older patients. That's right. Uh, also, with, you know, pre-existing um, chronic medical conditions, and obese patients are at higher risk of getting CRS, right? That's right. So, okay, um, how do they present then? So, CRS can present with a variety of symptoms ranging from mild, flu-like symptoms to severe, life-threatening manifestations of the overshooting inflammatory response. So, mild symptoms are the early clinical indicators which we look for in the assessment of a COVID-19 patient. It can be as simple as a fever, maybe fatigue, muscle and joint pain. If you can still remember, Amira, the warning signs we were talking about in the first episode. Yeah, so those yes. are the uh, uh, mild symptoms that a patient may present with. Uh, most severe forms are characterized by hypotension as well as high fever. And they can also progress to an uncontrolled uh, systemic inflammatory response, which can result in a shock, maybe vascular leakage, uh, disseminated intravascular coagulation. And, and another complication that we totally uh, want to avoid, which is multi-organ systemic failure. Right, so these are the sort of symptoms uh, that we can uh, we can identify as uh, early clinical indicators uh, to patients who present with CRS. Now, um, what are the other ways that we can use to identify these uh, category of patients early? 
That's a good question. So early identification, yeah. Uh, lab abnormalities that are common in patients with CRS they include uh, cytopenias, uh, elevated creatinine and liver enzymes, maybe deranged uh, coagulation parameters, and also a high CRP level. So um, having a, a combination, one or more of these uh, findings now can help us uh, detect CRS early. So what usually happens is patients who are entering this phase are identified early thanks to the frequent monitoring of their clinical status and blood parameters, as I mentioned. Once we have identified those who are potentially deteriorating, we can start initiating medications which can help tone down the overreacting immune response, if you get what I mean. Yeah, just like, you know, when you get too excited or worked up after an event you dislike <laughs> or something that ticked you yeah, off. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I, I do have a tendency of overreacting. I don't know about you, but um, I guess what calms me down is food. <laughs> I don't know if you can, you can relate. Yeah, same here. In, in fact, sense, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, so back to our context again. Timely and effective treatment is essential for CRS as the symptoms can rapidly worsen and become severe. The types of drugs we initiate are aimed at reducing inflammation brought by the surge of cytokine levels here. So some drugs will target specific cytokines. For example, we have tocilizumab, which targets to reduce the action of cytokine interleukin-6. Another option, is, uh, which is vastly used now, uh, is corticosteroids. And these drugs mm -hmm. reduce inflammation without targeting specific cytokines. So essentially, they reduce the overall inflammation that takes place. And, and depending on the severity of CRS, we can also uh, advocate other treatments uh, to, to support organs and prevent further damage. And this may include uh, adequate intravenous fluids, oxygen or ventilatory support, uh, medications to support the heart function such as vasopressors when indicated, and also blood product transfusion if needed. Right, so uh, we have talked about the uh, CRS as a complication of COVID-19. Let's now move on to another complication that we commonly see in COVID-19 infection, which is uh, acute renal or kidney injury, mm -hmm. or what I will refer to as ATI from this point onwards. So a meta-analysis showed that the incidence of AKI in COVID-19 patients were about 10%, which uh, was higher you know, than uh, its incidence in hospitalized patients without COVID-19. That's about 8%. Um, and of those hospitalized with COVID-19, the incidence was even higher in patients requiring critical care, which was up to four times more common compared to patients who did not require admission into the intensive care unit. Right. So what we can understand here is uh, those with COVID-19 had a tendency to develop AKI more than a person who has got no COVID-19. And those That's who are right. severely ill, they have a higher tendency of developing AKI and those were uh, the patients that were admitted to the intensive care unit, right? Now, th right. There is, an, uh, is there any prognostic uh, significance to this data, Amira? Sure. So the same meta-analysis has shown that the risk of death in patients with COVID-19 and AKI was 11 times more than those without AKI. So that's significantly higher. So identifying and managing AKI early in COVID-19 patients is important to prevent morbidity and mortality. Right. So that's interesting. So those um, with uh, AKI in COVID-19 patients are at a higher risk of uh, mortality. And who are the ones that are at risk of developing AKI? Are they the same category of patients that also may develop CRS, as I mentioned earlier? 
Yeah, so essentially they're uh, similar. Um, studies have shown that older age and COVID-19 severity are independent predictors to developing AKI. So that means that you know, patients who are 65 years um, and older and have severe COVID-19 disease, uh, those are uh, those who are at high risk of developing AKI and dying from the disease. Um, other risk factors include pre-existing chronic kidney disease, heart failure, and diabetes. Interesting. And here comes the question of um, how COVID-19 actually causes AKI. So we have looked at uh, what can happen once they develop AKI. Mm-hmm. And how does this actually happen? Maybe you want to share with the listeners some pathophysiology of AKI in COVID-19? Yeah, so um, there are many plausible mechanisms, uh, one of which is believed to be the direct infection of the virus into the kidneys, uh, leading to kidney injury. And um, as we have understood earlier on, the receptor for SARS-CoV-2 virus entry into the cells are the angiotensin-converting enzyme 2 or ACE2 receptors. Now, these receptors are present at higher concentrations at the renal tubular epithelial cells. They're also present at lower levels at the glomerular and vascular endothelial cells. So some autopsy studies on COVID-19 patients with AKI have demonstrated coronavirus in the renal tubular epithelial cells, suggesting that the virus directly attacks the renal cells and causes kidney injury. But of course, this does not preclude other causes for AKI in COVID-19. So direct viral infection can be a contributing factor, but often the causes for AKI is multifactorial. Um, hypovolemia and dehydration is one of the clear causes for AKI in patients with an acute infection, right? So these patients often have a fever and sometimes increased breathing effort, which lead to insensible fluid loss and dehydration. So you're saying that apart from the direct viral infection or the, the virus attacking the renal tubular system, um, other mm. uh, factors um, uh, such as dehydration and fever can also lead to AKI in COVID-19, right? That's right. So rather than that, I think hypovolemia and dehydration are the more common causes of AKI in COVID-19. And uh, the direct viral invasion mm-hmm. um, into the kidneys are more of a contributing factor than the sole cause. Right. Okay, that's clearer mm-hmm. now. So in our previous segment, we have talked about the increased incidence of microthrombi formation in COVID-19 patients. And um, similarly, the renal vascular system here also is susceptible to this. And AKI occurs due to the ischemic injury related to the thrombotic processes. And as I have mentioned just now, the late phase of COVID-19 is driven by an overshooting immune response that leads to inflammatory injury to multiple organs not leaving behind the kidneys. So one of Mm -hmm. the burning questions surrounding this topic would be, do any of the medications used in treating COVID-19 cause renal impairment? Yeah, um, that's a really important question. So our latest national COVID-19 guidelines recommend the use of favipiravir as the antiviral therapy for high-risk patients in Category 3 and above in the early or shall I say viremic phase, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Based on a large systemic review, uh, favipiravir overall actually has a good safety profile. Um, It's mainly renally excreted, yes, and its use has been um, shown to result in hyperuricemia. However, there has been no evidence that this is associated with any clinical manifestations. Now, bear in mind that the global phase 3 clinical trials did not include any patients with EGFR of less than 30 mils per minute, so that's CKD stage 4 and above, hence it is not recommended in this group of patients. But otherwise, in other group of patients, it has been shown to have a good safety profile. That's interesting because we're talking about the um, 
uh, antiviral um, that that may have an effect, but it doesn't. Uh, what is more important here is to look at the uh, medication list that the patient may come in with because uh, most of them do have a pre-existing medical condition and we want to make sure that we are avoiding nephrotoxic agents in those who have uh, acute kidney injury such as ACE2, uh, ACE inhibitors and, and uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs that they may be taking for pain, right? So, Exactly, that's a good point, yes. So moving on, how do we manage the uh, acute mm-hmm. renal complication in COVID-19 patients? So the approach for acute um, renal complications or AKI in COVID-19 patients is essentially the same as the approach for uh, patients without Mm -hmm. COVID-19. We go back to the basics, you know, maintaining a state of euvolemia or optimal fluid status is absolutely critical. So we can assess the patient's fluid status um, and determine whether uh, the patient has dehydration. Um, Dehydration often requires intravenous fluids correction and this requirement needs to be reviewed daily. Um, another thing that you can, well, uh, we can utilize is the early warning scores, such as the MU score, mm-hmm. um, which is very helpful in identifying patients who might deteriorate. And as you have mentioned before, uh, stopping any nephrotoxic or possible offending drugs is the utmost um, important step here. Um, another thing that we can uh, sort of uh, send off is uh, urinalysis and also do a renal ultrasound uh, when indicated, um, because those can be useful for determining the causes of AKI. In, um, in these patients. Now, regular monitoring of renal profile and also blood gases is also important for early identification of patients requiring further specialist advice. So those are patients whose kidney impairment are not improving uh, despite uh, therapy and who have indications for renal replacement therapy. Interesting. So it's uh, pretty much the same as how one would um, manage uh, AKI in a non-COVID patient. And um, since you mentioned renal replacement therapy in those uh, that's indicated, what is the effect or the, um, shall I say, impact of renal replacement therapy on patients with COVID-19 who require them? Do they do worse than those patients who do not require uh, renal replacement therapy? Is there any form of, uh, how should I say, harm that this therapy may cause on COVID-19 patients? Okay, um, so before we go into that, um, I'd just like to state that Uh, Studies have shown that the use of renal replacement therapy is about 5% in COVID-19 patients. But of course, the figure is higher in the severe disease spectrum who require critical care. So that's not an insignificant proportion, right? Um, Now, Mm -hmm. a study that was conducted in an academic medical center in New York City showed that a little over 20% of COVID-19 patients admitted in the ICU required renal uh, replacement therapy for AKI and approximately half of those patients died. So... Although this is a green prognosis, going back to your question, um, more importantly here is that in those patients who survived, there was an 80% rate of renal recovery that eventually allowed cessation of dialysis. So this is a particularly encouraging number and um, this allows better shared decision-making discussions with patients and family members and, you know, um, better resource planning for dialysis needs during a pandemic. Well, that is pretty reassuring since you mentioned that most of them that uh, do recover, they end up doing well and um, Mm -hmm. uh, going back to their families. Now, speaking of uh, fatal complications, on the other hand, the next complication that I want to talk about is um, cardiac complications. 
right? So cardiac manifestations is something to be worried of because it carries a high mortality risk. So what could be the reason these sort of manifestations are seen? Um, this could be due to, uh, divided into three direct effects of the virus onto the myocardial tissues causing myocarditis or ventricular dysfunction or heart failure. Uh, secondly would be thromboinflammation causing atherogenesis and occlusion of the coronary arteries. And finally, a little bit of uh, serosal inflammation leading to pericarditis. Okay, interesting. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the myocarditis part of COVID-19? Yeah, surely. So this phenomenon is thought to be a major contributor to myocardial injury causing myocarditis. It is postulated that uh, the overt hyperimmune reaction, as I mentioned earlier, leads to this huge cytokine storm, which in turn activates the actions of uh, inflammatory cytokines, leading to damage or inflammation of the cardiac tissue. And on the other hand, um, this uh, myocarditis can also be the uh, cause, the effect of direct viral uh, action onto the myocardial cells. So we have the host immune response, and now we have the direct viral effects onto the myocardial uh, tissue. And this is thought to be true because a similar presentation was observed in MERS-CoV-related myocarditis. And having said all that, there is still little evidence to report the direct effects of the viral particle onto the heart cells. Okay, so it's worth um, doing more studies into sort of Certainly. the mechanisms of myocarditis in yeah. COVID-19. Now, could you tell us what would trigger your suspicion of myocarditis in patients with COVID-19 and how do you go about working it up? Yeah, that's a very good question. Now, well, myocardial injury is the predictor of mortality here. So this is marked by raised cardiac troponins, essentially. However, take note that troponin in isolation is not diagnostic to uh, of myocarditis and uh, requires other findings as well. So before looking at the uh, lab investigations, which may take time, it is worthwhile to perform serial electrocardiograms or ECGs to look at dynamic changes which may predict future deterioration. Echocardiography is a valuable first-line non-invasive test in the workup of myocarditis. It can be used to rule out heart failure, uh, valvular heart disease, and also pericardial effusion. And in several cases, uh, case reports of suspected uh, myocarditis in COVID-19 patients, all the echo findings revealed reduced uh, left ventricular ejection fraction. The Canadian Society of Echocardiography, in fact, has uh, recommended that suspected cardiac injury in COVID-19 patients, a point-of-care ultrasound should be highly considered as an initial screening test for cardiac complications. Okay, so uh, setting off uh, cardiac enzymes plus echocardiography are important in the workup of a patient um, that you suspect has myocarditis, right? That's right, yeah. Great, thank you for that. So moving on now, um, after observing a larger sample size of patients we have come across in the past one year, it's clear to us that besides inflammation of the myocardium, the other most feared complication involving the heart is acute coronary syndrome or ACS. So Lavania, can you tell me how does the clinical spectrum of ACS in COVID-19 look like? Certainly. So it's pretty much the same as um, in a patient with uh, in a, in a non-COVID patient. The, the clinical spectrum of ACS may range uh, from myocardial infarction with ST segment elevation, which reflects an acute total coronary occlusion, to a non-ST elevation myocardial infarction or unstable angina. Uh, 
It is important here to take note that there are several other conditions related to the mismatch between oxygen supply and demand, such as seen in respiratory failure and sepsis, which may lead to myocardial injury as well, which is seen in type 2 myocardial infarction. Patients typically present with acute chest pain with uh, ST segment changes on ECG with or without um, increasing cardiac troponins. And treatment-wise, it really depends on where the patient is essentially. Just like how they will be managed if it was not due to COVID, um, thrombolysis is indicated if the event falls within the door-to-needle time of 90 minutes. And in a case of non-STEMI or unstable uh, angina, initiation of double antiplatelet therapy and anticoagulants is very important. Eventually, all cases will require referral to the cardiologist. Okay, um, great. So that's ACS for us. How about the third complication that you mentioned just now, which is um, pericarditis? Yeah, to be specific, it's acute effusive uh, pericarditis is what we're worried of. And this complication of COVID-19 will always be uh, ringing in my head because uh, of the case I encountered some few months ago in the ward. Unfortunately, the patient had succumbed to her illness. And let me give you an idea of the case. So it's a 60-odd-year-old lady with comorbidities, diabetes and hypertension who came in after contracting the infection from her family. The the symptoms she presented with were just merely a mild cough and uh, sore throat and on her third day with us she started complaining of vague um, some sort of vague abdominal pain with diarrhea uh, symptomatic relief was provided and the bloods actually did not show any form of uh, hyperinflammatory uh, changes however that very same evening she suddenly deteriorated with hemodynamic compromise requiring mechanical ventilation vasopressors and surprisingly her inflammatory markers were sky high so what was staring at us uh, was the extremely high lactate levels and generalized ST elevation on her ECG. What were our thoughts back then? So definitely a cardiac event, right? A bedside echocardiogram showed uh, diffuse pericardial effusion with a tamponade physiology and very soon right after the pericardiosynthesis was done, she didn't quite make it. And, and that incident taught me not to take vague symptoms lightly, especially in those with existing comorbidities, as it may take an entire different turn on you. And the other take-home message is uh, think of cardiac conditions in acute deterioration in COVID-19. Certainly. I think uh, we learned a lot from that case, uh, didn't we? <laughs> right, yeah. so enough of the heart-to-heart uh, -heart talk. Let's move on to the next um, common complication that we see in COVID-19 patients. So yeah, Amira, what are you going to share with us next? Okay, so I am going to talk about um, the sort of neurological complication in COVID-19. Now, we know that neurological manifestations are common in COVID-19, you know, namely uh, smell or taste disturbances, headache and dizziness, but those are mainly symptoms. What I'm to uh, going to talk about today is the neurological complications, uh, which I am going to break down to uh, two sort of presentations. The first one, acute cerebrovascular disease, and the mm -hmm. second one, um, infectious or inflammatory disease. So now acute cerebrovascular disease that is associated with COVID-19 include ischemic or hemorrhagic stroke, transient ischemic attacks or TIA, and cerebral venous thrombosis. And um, the incidence is reported to be around 0.5 to almost 6% in COVID-19. Um, and the most common type of acute cerebrovascular disease is ischemic stroke. The risk of developing this complication is much higher in patients in the severe disease spectrum. Now, this comes as no surprise since we have talked about the higher risk of thrombosis in COVID-19. 
Um, apart from severe disease, the risk factors that are associated with acute cerebrovascular disease in COVID-19 are older age, cardiovascular risk factors, prior comorbidities, and hypercoagulable lab parameters. Although it is worth mentioning that some case series have also reported the incidence of such neurological complications in younger patients without any known vascular risk factors. And this goes back to the possible mechanism of direct viral invasion into the neural tissues, um, inflammatory response, and also immune dysregulation. Okay, that's interesting. Um, so eventually, we have now figured that um, one of the pathophysiology of any form of complications would be the direct effects of the virus onto the tissues itself, right? Okay, However, yeah, there right. is still so much to learn about this phenomenon in COVID-19. How mm, about the infectious component since you mentioned earlier? So yeah, so the infectious... Um, diseases or meningoencephalitis and or encephalopathy, uh, I find that there are only a few retrospective studies describing this complication as a manifestation of COVID-19, but there are numerous case reports about it around the world. Um, two of the reports showed that there were elevated levels of cytokines in the CSF, and these cases, interestingly, had no respiratory symptoms at all when they presented. Um, suggesting that you know encephalopathy could be an initial presentation in COVID-19. Now, in these cases also, RT-PCR results were negative in their CSF and the patients showed clinical improvement with hydrosteroid or tocilizumab. This is just a probable mechanism of neuroinflammation you know, rather than direct viral neuroinvasion as we have uh, mentioned in the acute cerebrovascular disease part. Yeah, so there is another uh, mechanism of, uh, um, of pathophysiology here involved. Uh, how about um, demyelinating conditions? Have you encountered any patients with uh, demyelinating conditions as a result of COVID-19? So I have uh, personally never encountered any um, demyelinating disorders um, associated with COVID-19 myself. But there have been case reports uh, of inflammatory or demyelinating disorders associated with COVID-19, such as uh, acute disseminated encephalomyelitis, or what we call ADEM, um, clinically isolated syndrome, or CIS, or even exacerbation of uh, multiple sclerosis plaques. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, these cases had MRI demonstrating demyelinating lesions, uh, but some of the cases had positive RT-PCR results in the CSF, whilst others did not um, have those positive results. So, um, and again, interesting here is that these cases either had very mild or no respiratory symptoms at all when they presented. Now, these reports uh, essentially should alert uh, clinicians uh, regarding the association of demyelinating disorders with COVID-19 um, in the sense that, you know, we should look for COVID-19 in those patients presenting with um demyelinating disorders, even in those who do not have uh, respiratory presentations. Right. So we have uh, sort of talked about the neurological complications in COVID-19. Um, since we are in this particular demographic where non-communicable diseases like diabetes, namely, is also very prevalent, Lavania, has there been any reports or data that you found uh, describing metabolic complication of COVID-19? 
Yeah, so certainly a more severe form of COVID-19 is found or observed in those with diabetes mellitus. And this is somewhat like a bi-directional relationship here between COVID-19 and diabetes. On the other hand, diabetes also associated with an increased risk of severe COVID-19. And this is because existing diabetes mellitus and cardiovascular diseases are considered risk factors for increased COVID-19 disease severity, which also uh, comes with higher mortality incidences. And the effects of the infection or inflammation here is the one that leads to uh, dysregulation in the glucose homeostasis, which eventually leads to insulin resistance. So what we have seen is SARS-CoV-2 virus itself binding to angiotensin-converting enzyme 2 receptors. So they are also uh, expressed in uh, key metabolic organs and tissues, including the pancreatic beta cells and adipose tissues, apart from all the other tissues in the body. And it is believed that this virus can then alter glucose metabolism that could complicate the pathophysiology of pre-existing diabetes or leading to new mechanisms of the disease. Right. Um, I, I'll be honest with you. I think I've sort of forgotten uh, the, uh, that, that, that the ACE2 receptors are, well, present everywhere in the body. <laughs> I think we've always, uh, we've always focused on the lungs and the kidneys, right, in terms of ACE2 yeah. receptors. Uh, so, okay, so... Um, what we have talked or what you have talked about just now is uh, the possible um, mechanism of direct viral uh, entry into the cells causing um, glucose uh, or alteration in glucose metabolism, right? Uh, but apart from that, um, I find that steroids um, have been used quite extensively, not only in severe disease, but also in those with significantly rising inflammatory markers with no hypoxia. Do you think that uh, there could be effects of steroids on a person's diabetic status? Yeah, that's a good point you brought up there. Uh, certainly, pharmacological agents uh, that are currently being used, um, and uh, in particular corticosteroids, can affect glucose metabolism, particularly in patients with uh, diabetes mellitus. Therefore, frequent blood glucose monitoring and personalized adjustment of medications are required. A tight control of glucose levels and prevention of diabetes complications might be crucial in patients with uh, diabetes mellitus to keep susceptibility low and also to prevent the severe causes of COVID-19 happening. Okay, right. So we have um, talked about the sort of early complications of, uh, that is associated with COVID-19, right? Mm -hmm. Let's That's now right. move on to a relatively new syndrome that describes the long-term complications of COVID-19, the post-COVID-19 syndrome. Now, this syndrome is defined as signs and symptoms that develop during or after a COVID-19 infection that lasts for more than 12 weeks, which are not explained by an alternative diagnosis. Now, studies have shown that quite a significant number of patients still experience some forms of symptoms at three to six months after their acute infection phase. Interestingly, the post-COVID-19 syndrome is not thought to be linked to disease severity. So you actually see a proportion of young adults with no pre-existing chronic medical conditions who, you know, when they had COVID, they had a milder form of the disease, but are now reporting prolonged symptoms. Almost 40% of these patients had not returned to their usual state of health about two to three weeks after acute infection. Yeah, and these are the group uh, which are identified as the, as the long haulers, right? 
That's right, yeah. yeah. So you're saying that this syndrome is not necessarily correlating with the disease severity and, and we have seen news of personal trainers and marathon runners who are in their 20s to 40s who still report symptoms of debilitating fatigue and headaches long after they have cleared from COVID-19. And most of these patients actually did not require hospitalization during the acute phase of their infection and tested negative around three months after the initial phase. But they still ended up suffering uh, from lingering and prolonged symptoms, interestingly. That's right. So um, a study in China supports this. Um, it showed that at six months after mm -hmm. acute infection, the most common persistent symptom is fatigue or muscle weakness. A little over 60% of patients reported it. That's a huge number. Yeah. Now, um, a more recent study that had just been published in the US also showed consistent findings in that fatigue was the most commonly reported symptom that persisted for uh, up to nine months after an acute infection. Again, what was interesting to see here in this study was that the majority of patients that participated were outpatients with mild disease and, you know, about a third of them reported persistent symptoms. Now, other symptoms that have been reported include um, persistent loss of taste or smell, uh, headache, dizziness, tremors, numbness, uh, impaired mobility and balance. Now, these are the neurological manifestations that I mentioned before. Mm -hmm. And then uh, memory impairment and word-finding difficulties or what the patients call the COVID brain fog. And mm -hmm. then some health, uh, some mental health-related issues as well, like anxiety, depression and sleeping difficulties. Wow, that's a lot of symptoms here we're talking about. Right, exactly. so now the question is, what are the impacts of having these persistent symptoms on a patient? So, you know, that's a good question. Um, you know, a proportion of the patients or long haulers, as you have mentioned before, have reported negative impacts of these symptoms on their work and their daily activities. And, you know, as we all know, at the moment, there are more than 50 million cases worldwide Um of COVID-19 and if a substantial number of these patients suffer from persistent debilitating symptoms, this could result in enormous economic and health consequences. I totally have to agree with you on that. Mm. Alrighty then, after a long chat with you on the complications of COVID-19, I am in anticipation now to know what are we going to hear next? Okay, so I know everyone wants to hear about the vaccines since that has stopped the <laughs> most search word this year, beating COVID-19. Uh, but, you know, I think it is important to touch just a little bit on the treatment or drugs that we have tried and mm -hmm. also mm -hmm. are currently in use for COVID-19 before we, you know, go into the vaccines. Yeah, that, that's right. That's true. Uh, great. So um, we are at the end of today's chat. And as usual, before we go, we will leave you with a beautiful quote. When nothing is sure, everything is possible. Signing off from me, Lavanya. And me, Amira. Bye-bye.